everyone and welcome to Fab Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 118. My name's Jay McMara and I'm joined by fellow host Nam and Joel Canderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest who was Heather Williams MBE who discussed her amazing career and research within the field of imaging and diagnostics. If you haven't had a chance yet please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our next guest who's Tatum DeRock who will be discussing Shine Cancer Support, the role of yoga in cancer care and her amazing career to date. So welcome, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh I'm so delighted to be here with both of you. Really looking forward to this. Oh, well, thank you so much. We're so pleased to have you on. For anyone who has never heard about you before, can you just give us some information about you and what your current role is? Yeah, sure. So um, so I knew nothing about healthcare, like absolutely nothing. I ran around in my life with wild abandon. I was living in America. I lived there for seven years with no health insurance. If that gives you any idea of just how, um, you know, kind of anything to do with health just really wasn't on my radar. Like I thought everything was fine. Um, and then when I was 35, I was about to quit this job that I actually had really good health insurance. I was living in California and I thought oh, I should go for a last check. And on that last check, um, and I was planning to leave to become a yoga teacher. I'd just done my teacher training. And I was like, you know what? I've done, I've, I've been without health insurance before. Surely my yoga will be enough. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so right before leaving, I um, went and got a check and they found a lump. And so I was in a very lucky position that I was in a job in LA when I was diagnosed um, and had full health insurance. And, um, and that, you know, obviously the impact of that was massive, um, but sort of paled in comparison to the news that I got four months later, which was that my mum had ovarian cancer in the UK. And that meant everything was about to change. So I left my life for 15 years in America, came back to England, um, was there for my mum until she passed away, but then continued to be here as an advocate and carer for my sister who has learning disabilities. And I was back in a country that I hadn't lived in for 15 years. I was back in my childhood bedroom in a body I didn't understand anymore, feeling like I was 105 years old. They took out my ovaries to prevent me having ovarian cancer as well. Um, but because my breast cancer was hormone positive, it meant no HRT. So I was in a brutal menopause. Um, and at the time, everything I had done before all the things that I used to do, my whole life had gone and it was starting all over from here. So in that place, um, I sort of, <laughs> I wanted to make something good come out of it all, right? <laughs> when everything gets taken in every direction, um, both, you know, my mum and the chance to be a mum. And so I ended up 
getting support from Shine Cancer Support. And what I loved about it was that they were meeting for drinks in the evening, like regular people. <laughs> and what I found was that when, at that time, when I would meet someone for a drink, one, I, would, I couldn't tolerate alcohol. Um, and so I would nurse one drink and then there would be this real push for another, which I never understood. I was like, why? And they were like, well, you're not going to leave me to drink by myself, are you? And I was like, oh, like, this is super awkward. <laughs> and is this just an English thing? Because in America, when someone says, no, I don't like that, people go, oh, okay. <laughs> like, they just leave it. Um, so it was, it was a bit of culture shock. And, you know, I, I didn't even know how to put on makeup anymore. I didn't know, you know, my hair was short and doing crazy things, sticking straight up. It's really curly, as you can see. So it, it went up before it came down. Um, and to be able to meet a group of people that didn't mind if I showed up with makeup, who didn't mind if I showed up in trainers or in heels, um, who understood if I drank or I didn't drink and understood if I wanted to talk about, you know, how anxious I was um, and how scared I was. And also have a really good time, <laughs> a really dark sense of humor. Um, and that was how I found my way to, to shine initially. And I ended up working as a peer supporter for them and teaching yoga and I just fell in love with it. So it's kind of, I found, I found a place there. And at the time I was living in California, I used to do um, various different activities and I used to do a couple of different talk shows. And part of the thing that happened with my menopause was the ability to remember really important things like names. <laughs> so the idea of doing scripts or like live TV suddenly wasn't there for me in the same way. And I've actually um, also forgotten my own name before. Um, you know, people say, oh, I forgot my own name. I, yeah, I really have. I called myself Sarah. It's not even close. It wasn't even in my... <laughs> and out of the two names I was thinking the other day, Sarah or Tatum, like which one did it sound like I was lying? Because <laughs> like, I had to correct myself in the moment. Um, so, um, so I wanted to do a podcast and I wanted to do a podcast for people that, you know, maybe couldn't get to, like I'd been in LA and then in London and I wanted to do a podcast for people that maybe weren't in a city centre that didn't have that level of support and to kind of really investigate what they could access. How did you find out about Shine? I think I saw it on a poster at Maggie's, at a Maggie's centre. And what attracted me was that it was 20s, 30s and 40s. And it was any type of cancer. Um, I had been to a few breast cancer specific groups and I'd gotten some great information but there was something else that I needed I think in terms of um, 
sharing of all different types of experience that also widen my perspective on my own. So I think hearing from people that had, you know, yeah, any number of other cancers, it gave me a, a broader understanding, really. Um, and it was so interesting how much we had in common, even though some people had had totally different treatment. Tatum, can I just ask, you mentioned about having insurance. What would it have meant if you didn't have insurance going through that treatment? I mean, that is a very good question. Um, I cannot imagine how much my treatment cost. With really good health insurance, it was about seven grand to me that I paid. Um, I don't know, maybe it was over a mil. Um, And, you know, you can't in the States file bankruptcy for medical. So, yeah, it would have been really, really bad um, if, if, I mean, I probably would have had to have moved home sooner. I mean, as it was, I came back almost straight away. So as soon as my treatment finished, I flew back um, to be with my mum. It really does put it into perspective, doesn't it, when people say, oh, we should just privatise the NHS um, because, you know, it's failing or it's not as good as it it should be. And so actually, if we privatise it, it would improve. But the consequences of that can be absolutely huge, can't they? My feeling on it is that from talking to people in the UK, they don't really understand what it looks like, that things that are completely not in your control, you can get a bill for 60, 70, 100,000, and you might spend the rest of your life, um, you know, paying off because, you know, of either an accident or an assault or, you know, any number of things or a loss you know, you lose someone and you have to pay the medical bill for your child. Um, You know, and I don't think that people always necessarily take on board also what the bar is to reach out for care when it is so expensive. I mean, I definitely took some really big risks during that seven years. Um, But I do think there's something about the two systems that kind of can hold each other to account. So when you have some privatized, they want, they want to at least be good as the non-privatized, um, as the national one, and the national one kind of wants to be at least heading towards. So I think there's something that can be gained from, from both, but definitely the NHS is amazing and you don't have to worry about what job you're in you can move from job to job you can be freelance in this country um you don't you know had I stayed in America I might never have been able to change jobs um unless another company wanted to take me and all my medical baggage on board um I would have been almost you know or the the amount that I would have spent on health insurance um unfathomable so yeah the NHS is incredible I I have so much so much um gratefulness for it really 
Tatum, as someone who's just started to partake in yoga, how has yoga helped you through grief, but also through your kind of treatment and also then living beyond having cancer? So I think yoga, I mean, for me, works on so many different levels. And I'm very non-dogmatic about it. I'm very relaxed. Um, I feel like I was incredibly lucky to have just done my yoga teacher training. So I was aware of all these different styles of yoga. Literally, the place I was trained at was called Yoga Blend. So all the teachers came from different lineages. Nothing was dogmatic. It was very much that it should be adapted to you rather than you adapt to the practice, Um, which is a little bit different than some other styles of yoga where it's it's almost military precision. So I'm definitely not from that that background with it. Um, It was definitely like, you know, about being in your body, about seeing what works for you and that having that resource was amazing um, when I was first diagnosed. I remember a few times during chemo, like literally crawling, like in my mind's eye, I actually sort of body, (laughs) body rolled into the yoga studio um, and just found my mat and didn't do half the class, but just lay there and, and breathed and, and it was so nice that I felt so comfortable in that space. I didn't have to do everything. And I think a lot of people, when they're looking to start yoga, maybe don't realize about all the different types of classes. And actually, you don't have to do everything the teacher says. Um, and it's really for you. It should be for your body. And if you're unsure, then sometimes it's worth getting a one-to-one with a teacher that can kind of tailor a couple of things for you to give you that confidence um, or, or attending a class for, you know, other people um, with cancer. I think it's also really nice. I teach for um, Shine online, but also we do yoga brunches. And when we did our um, pre-pandemic, our um, great escape weekends, the yoga classes were so much fun. And... It was so nice to practice around everybody. And like between us in the room, there would be all kinds of people with, you know, sort of different body parts missing, <laughs> you know, all the regular yoga cues of, you know, kind of you know, talking about your belly button and someone from the back going, don't have a belly button, <laughs> you know. Um, it just made it actually lovely because it was a place to celebrate that uniqueness. And someone could do something on one side and not the other. And that was so normal in that space. And I think there's something that can be really lovely, empowering and and reconnecting. Um, I know I'm someone that, you know, one of my coping mechanisms is dissociation. I think it's really common. Um, And so for me, finding my way back into my body has been a it's a practice (laughs) that I come back to again and again and it's a way to kind of come back into my life so yeah for me it's been profound but it's also been 
fun and light and rejuvenating and nourishing all the things. For people who have a very busy lifestyle outside of being a cancer pet, like having cancer treatment, sorry, where does yoga fit in? Because obviously you mentioned the different styles. So there's the physical side, the breathing side. So I think, you know, be really kind to yourself. I think that can be the beginning of a yoga practice. And it's starting wherever you would like to start in a way that feels really comfortable for you. So whether that's, you know, kind of taking those few deep breaths for a couple of minutes, I think that that is an amazing place to begin. And yoga is about, you know, kind of not just what you do, but also what you don't do. So it could be, you know, that practice of self-care it could be, you know what, I'm not going to go to a yoga class because actually I'm really anxious right now. And what I really need is a cozy night in, you know, and listening to yourself like and then maybe the next day there's a little bit more energy or maybe like, you know, what, I'm going to talk to someone who's been to that class or maybe I'll talk to the teacher or maybe I'll just do one online and just see do I like it or do I not? I do think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be sort of this good cancer patient. And that often, you know, we often get prescribed yoga and mindfulness. And I know for myself, if someone else had mentioned mindfulness to me, I was going to explode. Like, you know, I would never actually um, yell at someone, but like this 16 year old rebel inside me when someone went, have you tried Oh, no. Um, So I think it's really taking it away from being a should and just seeing if it's maybe something that you like. And if it is, that's lovely and there's so much to explore. And if there isn't, there might be something else that's lovely and reconnecting and rewires your neural pathways into breathing when you feel kind of tightness and resistance you know I think it's really honoring that uniqueness and I love when I teach a yoga class if everyone's doing something different um I feel like I failed as a teacher if everyone's perfectly in the pose I was like this can't be right <laughs> not this you know we're, we're all so different we're made differently but especially after cancer Tatum you mentioned an interesting point there so what is a good cancer patient oh <laughs> I mean Oh, we all hear about them, right? So I'm sure you must have come across, um, they never complain, they run marathons, um, they're endlessly positive, right? <laughs> like, um, they show just enough vulnerability, but then they always come back with something else that's, you know, just really poignant and they're, you know, they've got so much to live for and they're living every second as if it's the last and their lust for life is infectious and you know it can go on and on and on um and I I, I'm sure there are people like that but I think it's really hard to have this um 
narrative or this identity almost sometimes thrown at you um, by very well-meaning people, but actually just allowing yourself to be human and it, it is a really massive thing and you don't have to, no one else is living with that pressure of seizing every moment, right? Like, why should you? Um, and this is something that, you know, at the Shine program, so I also um, facilitate programs. So at Shine, it's for people in their 20s, 30s and 40s. And it's all different kinds of cancer. And yeah, these are the things that, that get talked about, kind of the pressures, what people, you know, kind of expect, how we censor ourselves in front of certain people, um, how we might censor ourselves in front of healthcare professionals as well, you know, what's our patient persona, um, how do we advocate for ourselves, but also like how to, you know, where, where do we put all of this um, when maybe we've reached out, we've tried to explain to someone what scanxiety feels like or, and we're met with just be positive. Um, and I can, I can see oh, honestly, you Honestly, you've hit the nail on the head because for me, clinically, they are the patients I worry about the most. When you have someone who is coming in and they're nailing life on the surface, you know that actually they aren't necessarily being their authentic selves or they're putting on a mask or, or that is the way that they're coping. But as soon as you start to kind of ask the questions you can really see them kind of pulling away going oh no I'm not ready for this and it is always a case of you know you don't you do everyone will cope differently but you definitely hit the nail on the head of of those people who maybe on the surface seem to be you know the perfect cancer patient but I don't I don't think they ever exist to be honest and we would much rather as healthcare professionals have someone who is able to kind of feel like they can be themselves or share how they're feeling um, because it allows us to then put the support that they need in place rather than them going home going, everyone thinks I'm coping and actually I'm really not. Is that how you you yourself felt? Because I'm thinking it must have been, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it must be leaving all your friends, coming home, having to grieve and also having care responsibilities and any side effects that, that you're suffering with as a result of treatment. Like you kind of said it nonchalantly going, oh, this is my story. But actually that must have been so, so difficult for you. You know, I think cancer is really confronting on a number of levels anyway. And there's so many different types of grief that, you know, from the really superficial seeming things, but actually they're really important as well. And, you know, it, and just that assumptive world that you thought you were living in. And, and for me, like literally what, everything changed both outside and inside so all the places that I used to sort of you know call like my healing spaces so like the open mic night that I'd go to to listen to other people's stories that had like such rich 
amazing storytellers like was now 6,000 miles away, you know, or my favorite hike or my favorite restaurant or, you know, like everything from those small things to my best friend, to my partner, I left everyone, to the doctors that I had formed that bond and that trust with um, and coming to a different place where I didn't have a job, I, my brain wasn't working um, I didn't have winter clothes, so I was literally wearing my mum's winter coat and her winter shoes, living my mum's life, um, and knowing for the rest of my life, and the rest of my sister's life, she will always be the person that I will worry about the most, because if anything happens to me, I could get my head around that, but there will never be a time that she can't be without me. So it was, I, I, I needed a lot during that time. Um, I think grief, yeah, in just every, every direction. And then a few years afterwards, um, I started to get functional neurological symptoms. And I was, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, like I was so embarrassed. And, you know, shame really hit so hard that my body was turning on me again. And that's also one of the things that I love about Shine is that whereas some support places are really geared up for when you're in treatment, you know, and you look around and everyone else is sort of in treatment and, and that's lovely. But because it's a space to process all of this, you can be years out and then have something else happen and it brings you right back. And actually, like you were saying, Joe, with those patients that you're like, oh, are you okay? It's like, how long can you keep going for before it catches up? And when it does, where do you go? That, you know, I know for myself, walking into some cancer centers years out, I, I would feel like I was taking up someone else's spot. I wouldn't feel comfortable. Whereas actually that's one of the things that I really like um, about Shine is, you know, people have come 10 years later um, and, and said, wow, I never, I never processed it. I never had the space. How are you doing at the moment? Um, so, um, I'm pretty busy, <laughs> um, so I wear a lot of hats at Shine, as you can probably <laughs> guess at the moment, so I do their podcast, Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show, um, which is a monthly podcast, all different topics, um, and I also do their yoga brunches, facilitate their programs, and I also work for a number of other social enterprises that, um, train on um, NHS teams about self-management um, as a lived experience and that I work with um, yeah, other organization with patient experience and really um, lending my story as much as possible in ways that can be useful to people. With Shine, do people um, always self-refer or can healthcare professionals kind of promote 
promote people to get involved and you know how if they're not necessarily london based would people get involved oh so it shines all over i'm so glad that you asked that question anyone can you know come along that has a diagnosis in their 20s 30s and 40s though within that age range um we have events um all different um networks across the country um and we actually do have healthcare professional workshops as well so if you are a healthcare professional that would like to know specifically more about what younger adults you know some of the challenges that are quite specific to that middle range where you're not under young and teenage cancer services and you're not you know kind of in that mainstream 50 plus um you know where you maybe you're dating or uni or have young children or you know all those things all career just about to start or you know just about to get to that next level that time period like anyone can come along to and if um and we do have cpd accreditation um for those workshops so if you go to the website sharoncancersupport.org um, you can find out about those there and in terms of events, yeah, they're all over the country. The programs we offer are online. So we have people um, joining from, from everywhere, which is really lovely. And it, we also run a conference in London so people can get together in person for the conference. We also have in-person um, camping. I mean, having said that, I don't know how you could not have in-person camping, but, <laughs> but in-person just seems to go in front of so much now. Um, yeah, so we have like camping that people can bring their families and children. Um, and we also have resources for plus ones. We have, um, so partners can come along to our circles program as well, um, as having resources online, YouTube channel, so yes, you know, people can self-refer if you're listening and you want to come along and check out the, the website um, and there's lots of things to do. So you can kind of dip your toe in, you know, see what you might like, um, what might speak to you. We also have a, an LGBTQ um, group and that meets. We also have like a chronic cancer group. So, you know, sometimes if it's the, you know, You'd like to meet people even within that age range that have more in common with you, book club or, you know, things like that. Or you're more of a, you know what, I'd like to go axe throwing. <laughs> there's that as well. So there's lots of different things happening. Thank you. I'm sure anyone who kind of fits within that age range is already thinking right okay, I need to get on Google and have a look because it, it sounds amazing. And obviously that peer support element is so vital when you're going through cancer diagnosis cancer treatment and then living beyond with cancer I think it's really important so thank you for highlighting what's next for you Tatum what's it what's in the pipeline what what are you envisaging I mean sort of more of the same I'd love to see um you know Things change, um, you know, there are more and more younger people being diagnosed. Um, 
And I think awareness of that and awareness of what are the challenges, awareness of how to empower people even in acute treatment. Um, you know, how do we, um, how do we kind of acknowledge really that medical PTSD, you know, and meeting people when, you know, they're in quite traumatized states. Um, and yeah, kind of looking at, you know, providing, providing support on both sides. What, what can I do to continue to support young adults with, with cancer, but also, um, lending that in, in useful ways to help clinicians as well. I suppose linking to that after help, if you want, beyond a, the treatment pathway, what's your experience been with kind of young people accessing late effect services? So I think some of the people that we've come across through the podcast or things like that, they've really struggled exactly as you said earlier, that transition from being a young adult into the adult services. I mean, I think it's really layered because with late effects, I think a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people will feel, well, I got through the cancer. <laughs> Maybe I should just suck it up and keep going and keep going and keep going. And I think there is a lack of people knowing where to go to get additional help who to even contact because if they've fallen off their roles or they're, they're not seeing sort of someone on a regular and more and more there's, they're being discharged out of oncology. So then it's back to the GP and there's not necessarily that understanding of the complexities, whether that be sexual health um, that can be really impacted for, you know, for the rest of somebody's life really. Um, or, you know, long-term effects of menopause or late effects that come about. So I think that is a challenge to know where to go and who to speak to, but also it's a challenge to start that for yourself as well, because, you know, I know for me, um, like I said, that there can be such a sense of shame around it. Like, again, that, that good cancer patient, she's coming back to haunt you, right? Because she's, she's handling it all, you know, with her, you know, beautiful Instagram. Um, but actually, you know, to be five years out and then have something crop up that is related, but maybe not directly related, but you know you wouldn't have had that if it wasn't for your treatment. Um, it can be it can be triggering. It can be all kinds of feelings can come up, and so it would be lovely to have more of a pathway, um, ideally, to where to go with that. Tatum, can I ask about? Um infertility and by all means if this is triggering or you don't want to answer it it's absolutely fine um but I just wondered whether or not you know within the American system whether that was something that was taken into consideration yeah it really was um so I was 
lucky. And by the way, I'm an open book. You can ask me anything. Um, you might know this by now. I'm, I'm, I'm more on the TMI front than I am the holding back bit. <laughs> Same as us then, it's fine. Oh, excellent. Um, so yeah, so that was, and my treatment was um, delayed so that I could have my eggs taken um and and frozen so that was something that i i was lucky in that i had that opportunity and i know that not everyone gets to have that and yeah and i mean i think you know infertility isn't talked enough about i think also because it it there's such a huge umbrella. So underneath that, it might be temporary infertility that might come back. There might be um, that you never, you know, if you're 23, you never even thought about whether you wanted kids or not yet. So is that, a, you know, it's like a loss of the option, but not necessarily a concrete desire. Um, and then, you know, for other people, it might be secondary infertility, or I absolutely knew that I wanted to. And for some people, there might be other options. And for others, that's it. That's the end of the sort of fertility road. And I think that's a huge umbrella to hold. Um, and I think meeting other people that have, that are sort of a similar place to you on that, can make all the difference. If you were to then use your eggs, and this is a logistical thing, how would they, do you, Do they then send them from America to the UK for you to use, or would you have to go back to America? So I did, um, so when I was growing my eggs, it also grew my cancer. Um, like it, it got tangibly bigger, I could feel it. <laughs> Um, I could see it and, you know, it was on the scans. So um, I knew that my, my cancer was very estrogen hungry. Um, and when I moved back to the UK, I was going to try to have a child again. And I had, so there's a difference between America and England. I had my eggs um, I had a donor um, that agreed to one point of contact when the child was 18 and I had paid more for that option and that's different to UK law so it was a whole showdown with the human embryo and fertilisation which do things uh, behind closed doors they have court cases that no one can attend <laughs> Um, and you just get told afterwards what happened. Um, but it turns out in my situation that there was actually a human rights violation um, and they were allowed into the country and I had one chance to get pregnant um, and I did it and it terrified me for the fact that I was filling my body with as much estrogen as possible. Um, and the pregnancy took, and at eight weeks, the heartbeat um, went, and so I lost 
my my one my one opportunity to be a mum. Um, and it was missed miscarriage, so I carried for 18 weeks. And then I went from being um, pregnant to having a DNC and plunging into postmenopause. Not a slide known in nature. Um, and yeah, it was, it was devastating. But I, I couldn't have tried again. Um, for a number of reasons, financial reasons, but also I knew I needed to live, to outlive my sister. <laughs> so I couldn't take another chance to get pregnant again. Although it, the, that was a, it's a huge intangible loss, isn't it? Like it's a, you know, I, I just always thought I was gonna be a mum after I turned 30. Before 30, I was like, no. <laughs> I turned 30 and I was like, oh, yes. Like definitely, you know, my clock started ticking. Um, and yeah, and it was a big fight to get through all those stages. Um, so that, that, little, that little person that was just there for eight weeks was very wanted but um, was, not, was not to be. Well, thank you so much for sh sharing your story. Um, I'm sure people out there really appreciate you being so honest and open about it. Um, thank you so much. Um, Tatum, re another really hard question. I feel bad for now no, putting for this it. question on you after you've just disclosed that as well. But because you're doing such amazing work through Shine, and you're caring for your sister and you came back to the UK. I don't know, if you had your chance again, would you have had cancer? If you were to, you know, erase everything that you've been through, you lived your life again, but you could choose whether or not to have it or not, would you still have had cancer? No. I mean, I know some people feel like they, they got a lot from it. Um, I personally felt like I had already appreciated life. Um, I didn't take things for granted. I mean, yes, I thought I was kind of, um, what's the word? I lose my words. <laughs> I used to be able to find them so easily. Um, invulnerable, like, a, like yes, I, I had a little bit of a, definitely a sense of that. But I appreciated every moment that every opportunity I ever had, every place I ever went, and, and whether that was because I had a sister with learning disabilities who couldn't do those things, it was already very much inside me that, you know, kind of the, the gift that I had. Um, and I already felt the pressure of like needing to live my life because, you know, it, not everyone gets to have that opportunity. And I didn't feel like cancer, I didn't feel like I needed to learn anything from it. Um, I think from the experience, I would like to say that I chose to lean into it and try and use it to the best I can. Um, and I'm really happy that I've met the people that I've met and so incredibly honored 
to have been part of some really incredible people's lives and and yeah life would have been very very different um but I think if I knew that I was definitely going to be here for my sister's like final days that's that's the most important thing to me and cancer really every time there's oh we found something on the other breast oh we need to do a double biopsy on the other side you know oh there's a shadow on your lung oh there's this and you know every single time like that's the you know I don't like living like that that you know even when you get a good scan right it's like yay till next year Tatum, we've come to the end of the podcast. Uh, we always finish with top tips. So for our audience listening, is there anything you'd love them to take away from this episode? Apart from obviously all the amazing things you've already, <laughs> already said. Talking to other people in a similar situation can make the world of difference. Even when you think that you've, you're managing it all, even when you think that you can talk to your friends, there's something about that laughter, that deep understanding when someone just nods, you know, that, and you don't have to explain, they just get it. And that's freeing and that lasts so long, right? That can last, you know, as long as your life is, right? Um, that feeling of being understood normalizes what isn't a normal process. When really not, you know, as humans, our optimism was hardwired in there so that we wouldn't be cowering in a corner, like ruminating on our mortality, you know? So it is a very uncomfortable place to live and to have that be somewhat shared and normalized, I think is is really massive. Oh, Tatum, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've been amazing. And it's been really interesting to hear everything that you've kind of shared with us today. Um, so thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara and Numman Jog Hansen. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the form linked with the podcast. Our next guest feature will be Amy Epstein who will be discussing the Lynn Cohen Foundation that they founded so thank you all for listening and take care Bye.